Science Friday is supported by Dell. Seasons change. Why not your gaming tech? Upgrade now during Alienware Summer Sale Event and save on select next-gen Alienware gaming PCs and more. Pair your impressive skills with our advanced gaming systems like the Alienware M18 laptop, powered by an Intel Core i9 processor, featuring awe-inspiring visuals, liquid cooling, three-dimensional audio with Dolby Atmos, and impressive overclocking potential. Your dream setup. Exceptional prices and free shipping await you for a limited time only at Alienware.com deals. That's Alienware.com deals. Science Friday is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This episode of Science Friday is brought to you by Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel. A lot of what we think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. Learn the truth behind some of the weirdest shark myths. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Jane Goodall is a legend among living scientists. She's also highly accomplished in the language of chimp calls. If you're lucky, you hear the chimpanzee who's calling out saying, here I am, it's a wonderful day, where are you? And (gasps) it's Tuesday, November 28th, but of course, today is Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. We're going to revisit a conversation that Ira had with Dr. Jane Goodall on Science Friday back in 2002. Even though this chat happened more than 20 years ago, a lot of what they discuss feels prescient to today's world. At the time, Dr. Goodall had just published her book, The Ten Trusts, What We Must Do to Care for the Animals, and an IMAX film about her work with chimps had just been released. The, the reason for all, let's start with your book first, The, the Ten Trusts. Why, why The Ten Trusts? It's the ten trusts that we should have made with the environment, with the wilderness, that we have betrayed. And it's trying to explain to people that every one of us can do something about making this world a better place for, for each other, but also for the animals and for the environment. Mm-hmm. So is, is this going to be the next part of your career, do you think? Have you moved away from research on the chimps now and in, in, in this, heading in this new direction? Well, I haven't been involved in the actual research since 1986 mm-hmm. when I suddenly realized that chimpanzees were vanishing in the wild and being horribly mistreated in captivity. That was during a conference in Chicago when we brought all the chimp people from around Africa together. The research at Gombe continues. There's a great team there. But my role, you know, other than occasionally visiting just really for my own good, is to be sure that the the money is there to to yeah. ensure that the research continues and continues in the right way. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. Um, uh, 
Gilbert uh, Grosvenor, chairman of the National Geographic Society, once wrote about you in one of your books. She was hardly the image one would project to become an old African hand. Her bush experiences <laughs> were honed in the genteel English countryside. How did you get it wind up with that background in Africa? Well, it wasn't exactly genteel. I wouldn't have described it like that. But, you know, animals were my passion from even before I could speak, apparently. And Is then, that right? Mm, so I was watching earthworms in, in my bed when I was one and a half. And I hid for five hours in a hen house when we had the opportunity to go into the country because we lived in the town. And I hid for, for five hours because I was collecting the eggs and, you know, there was the egg. Where was the hole big enough for the egg to come out? Nobody told me, so I hid. <laughs> you, wanted, and, you wanted to watch it. And I watched it. And it was my first, you know, wonderful experiment. And then when I was about 10, 11, I found the books about Tarzan of the Apes. No, vid no, no TV in those days, so I read the books. Mm -hmm. Fell in love with Tarzan. He's got that wife, Jane, you know, so I was terribly jealous of her. <laughs> And that was when my dream started. When I grew up, I would go to Africa, live with animals, and write books about them. That's how it all began. And how did you fulfill that dream? Well, I got the opportunity when a school friend invited me to go and stay on their farm in Kenya, where her parents had just bought some land. And I was working at the time with Documentary Film Studio in London, which is a great job, didn't pay very much. So I quit that, went home and worked as a waitress and served people there breakfast, lunch, tea, and dinner until I'd saved up enough money to buy my return fare by boat because it was cheapest in those days. So, you know, I was 23, and I sort of said bye-bye to family, friends, and country, and off I went on this amazing adventure. And so who, somebody invited you to go, or did you just show up on the doorstep someplace? No, this was a school friend. School friend. And I went to stay there, but, you know, I was taught that mm. you didn't sponge on people for too long. So I stayed there for a month, but we had arranged a job for me in Nairobi, a boring job, a secretarial job, but at least I would be independent. And that was when I heard about the late Lewis Leakey. And somebody said, Jane, if you're interested in animals, you must meet Lewis. So I picked up the telephone, cheeky me, and made an appointment to go and see Lewis Leakey. He was then curator of the... Natural History Museum in, in Nairobi. He was a wonderful gentleman, wasn't he? He was tell, amazing. Tell us some Louis Leakey stories. Well, you know, the first time when I called, to my amazement, he answered the phone and he said, I'm Leakey, what do you want? Which wasn't a very auspicious beginning. But then when I got there, he he took me all around. He asked me so many questions about the, the um, animals there. And because I had done what my mother said I should do, which was, you know, if you really want something, you work hard, you take advantage of opportunity, and you never give up. Mm -hmm. I'd been reading about Africa. I'd spent all my lunch hours in the Natural History Museum in London learning about Africa and animals. So I think he was impressed, and he gave me the opportunity to work for him. And he took me with his wife and one other young English girl to, at that time, they did three months in the summer at the now famous Olduvai Gorge. But that was before any human remains were found. Right. So it was absolutely wild, untouched Africa. And typical Lewis, there was never any money. So everything was on a shoestring. And the equipment mostly didn't work. And it was a very ramshackle sort of uh, place. And I remember when he first talked to me about 
going on that expedition, which was, you know, I had all my fingers crossed. And he said, well, it's going to depend on my wife. If she likes you, you can come. And can you imagine what it was like when I went to lunch at the house thinking, oh, dear, what can I do to make Mary like me? <laughs> Obviously, she did. Fortunately, she did, yes. And we, were you around then when we made that famous discovery? No, I was the year before. Was the year before. Oh, just Which was out. so lucky. It was because, lucky. Yes, because it was absolutely unknown. There was no, there was no formal digging up a place and marking it on a grid. It was pre all that, so we just spent all day chipping away in the, in the rock. And then Gillian and I were allowed out on the plains. There, sure. there wasn't a road there. There wasn't a trail. There was nothing, and all the animals were there. The, the antelopes, the zebra, the giraffes. And then one evening there was a rhino, which was a little bit scary. And one evening a, a young male lion, two years old totally curious, never seen anything like me and Gillian before. And he followed us for at least, well, a couple of football pitches, I should say. <laughs> well, you sound like you, you were bitten by the bug right there. Before I even got there, when I, when I got there, when I got out to Olduvai, it was like being at home. And so then how did you find your way toward working with the, the chimps? Well, it was during that Olduvai time that Lewis realized that I was the sort of person he said he'd been looking for for about 10 years, who didn't care about hairdressing and clothes and parties and boyfriends. You know, I really wanted to be in the wild. So he made this suggestion to me, it took him a year to get the money. I mean, who was going to give money to a, a young girl, a female, who didn't have a degree of any sort, straight out from England. I mean, what a ridiculous idea. So I was in England waiting, learning what I could about chimpanzees while he searched for money and eventually found a wealthy American businessman. He said, okay, Lewis, here you are. Here's enough money for, for six months. We'll see how she does. And you did pretty well. Well, it was a very, very uh, worrying time because I got to Gombe. Again, I felt I was at home. But the chimpanzees ran away as soon as they saw me. You know, they're very conservative. They'd not seen a white ape before. And I knew if that six months' money ran out before I'd seen something really exciting, everyone would, you know, I would have let Lewis down. Well, we told you so. This is ridiculous. But fortunately, just before that time came, I saw the first observations of using and making tools, and that was the saving observation, the breakthrough. And suddenly you were Louis's girl. Suddenly, well, I don't know if I was that, but <laughs> at least I'd made it, and he was able to go to the National Geographic Society and persuade them to put some more money in when the first six months ran out. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, at that time, you know, we were defined as man the toolmaker. That right. was supposed to differentiate us more than anything else in the rest of the animal kingdom. And, and you discovered that even the chimps, the chimps could make tools. David Greybeard, bless his heart. Um, I saw him crouched over a termite mound. Couldn't really see properly. They were still not very, you know, not very relaxed in my presence. I was hiding, and but I knew he was using a piece of grass. And a few days later, he and one of the other chimps, I could see them much better. The whole thing, putting in the grass, picking the termites off, picking a leafy twig and stripping off the leaves, which is the beginning of tool making. So that was it. Exciting. 
It was, I couldn't actually believe it. I had to see it about four times before I let Lewis Leakey know. And then I sent a telegram, you know, we're pre-fax era back then. And he sent back his famous um, comment, ha ha, now we must redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimpanzees as humans. <laughs> Incredible. And um, interesting, you talked about the name of the chimp that you had. Was, I guess no one else was doing any of this stuff at that time. You were, oh, you, no. we, I mean, in terms of naming chimps, was that something that other scientists were doing, name, giving names to their chimps? No, they weren't. And the funny thing was, you know, after a bit, Lewis said, um, he said, Jane, you have to get a degree because otherwise you can't get your own money. And I won't always be around to get money for you. But he said, we don't have time to mess about with a BA. So you'll have to go straight for a PhD. So he managed to persuade Cambridge in England to accept me as a PhD student. And when I got there, it was actually a very unpleasant and hostile reception that I had. I shouldn't have named the chimps. It wasn't scientific. I didn't know. I mean, I knew nothing. I sh couldn't talk about their personalities, these vivid personalities that I by then was beginning to know. I certainly couldn't talk about them being capable of rational thought, which they clearly were. And finally, worst sin of all, was that I was ascribing to them emotions like happiness, sadness, and so forth. But fortunately, one, by that time I was 27. And, you know, I wasn't in it because I wanted a PhD. I was there for Lewis. But more importantly, perhaps, all through my childhood, I had this wonderful teacher, and that was my dog, Rusty. So I knew that animals had personalities, minds, and feelings, and of course they needed names. Quick question. When you saw the chimp taking the ants out on the, on the stem, how did you know that was an important thing? How did you know? You had no training, right? I knew because just about two weeks before that, I was visited by George Schaller, who just finished his mountain gorilla study. And as we sat up on the peak, which was my lookout place, from which gradually the chimps got used to me, he said, uh, if you see tool using and hunting, those two things will make your study worthwhile. And within two weeks, I saw them both. It was quite extraordinary. And both times, it was David Greybeard. The same one. The same one. How long did he live for? David Greybeard died in 68. There was an epidemic of mm. some kind of pneumonia. And he wasn't very old. He must have been about maybe 35 when he died, something like that. Mm. And how long should a chimp live to? They can live to be 60. Now, Fifi, who was a little baby when I arrived in 1960, she's well, about 43 now. And she looks absolutely fine. In fact, she's pregnant again and could have a baby this month. Do you say mazel tov to a chimp? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah I get to say <laughs> that, I guess. Yeah. That's terrific. But you know, they can live to be 60. Wow. Well, now, I know you do wonderful chimp calls. I'm going to try to get my engineer ready for this because Jane tells me it's pretty loud. <laughs> so tell us what call you're going to be giving. Well, I'm going to do the greeting. And it's the kind of sound you'd hear if you went to Gombe and you climbed up onto the ridge in the morning and you listened. And if you're lucky, you hear the chimpanzee who's calling out saying, here I am, it's a wonderful day, where are you? And, <gasps> Wow. That's great. And, and, <clears throat> and each, each one has his or her own individual voice. So you know exactly who's calling. So like we can tell on the phone who the chimp is, you can also tell. Yes, correct. 
Do chimps have dialects from different parts? Often? They actually do. Now, we, nobody's done very much work on that, but my ear isn't that good for chimp sounds, but even I can go like to Uganda or, or into Congo and hear the chimps calling. And although there's a lot of, that's the same, you do hear different kinds of sounds. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than 6 million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Senator Raphael Warnock, a Georgia Democrat, on the election and the soul of a nation. The country has long been in a spiritual crisis amplified by the reality of Trumpism. This November for me is much more than an election. It's a spiritual battle. Raphael Warnock on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We are revisiting our 2002 conversation with legendary primatologist Jane Goodall about her career working with chimpanzees. I want to pick up on the the thread you were talking about before the break about you having to get a PhD. You went back and they were just aghast at you. Yeah, they were. Whippersnapper, upstart. Yeah, it was even accused of teaching the chimps how to fish for termites, which, I mean, that would have been such a brilliant coup. <laughs> but, so continue. So. Well, eventually, you know, so the Geographic came in and, and provided money. And then my ex, late ex-husband was sent out by Geographic, and he got this amazing film, some of which has been blown up for the new IMAX. And it's just amazing that that film that he took in 1961 um, has blown up onto this huge screen. It's very, it actually, it's very moving for me to see that. I you know, I, back. I think that that's how I learned about you when I was young. I think that most people saw those geographic, National Geographic specials on television. Yes, they did. They did. Whole generations of people saw and were moved by those and got fascinated. And, you know, literally thousands of people have said, I'm doing what I do because I, you know, grew up with you. Uh, what was the most, oh gosh, you, I, I hate to ask this, what was the most surprising, besides your initial discovery, what has been most surprising to well, you? The most surprising and, and shocking, really, was when in 1970, that's after 10 years of research, we realized that chimpanzees have a dark side, just like we. I thought they were so like us, but rather nicer. And then to find that they're capable of brutality, that they may even have... Uh, a series of events not unlike primitive warfare, that they can attack members of another social group so severely that those individuals um, die as a result of their wounds and that infants can be killed. And Mm. that was very, very shocking. Mm -hmm. You've been in the forefront in the last few years. As you say, you you gave up real field research in the 80s, uh, late 80s, of animal rights. Tell us about that. I was very shocked at this conference in Chicago to see secretly filmed footage of chimpanzees in a medical research lab in cages that were five foot by five foot and totally bleak and barren, isolated, these highly social beings who are so like us in so many ways. 
And that was really what what took me out as an advocate, took me away from pure research mm -hmm. because I felt I owed it to the chimps. They taught me so much. They'd given me so much. They really helped to blur the line that people saw as so sharp, dividing us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And once that line is seen as blurred, once you're prepared to admit that that we're not the only beings with personalities, minds, and feelings, then you have a new respect not only for the chimps, the other great apes, but other amazing sentient sapient beings with whom we share the planet. We have to take a break, and when we come back, more from our 2002 conversation with primatologist Jane Goodall. Hey there, listeners. Science Friday continues to make an impact because of people just like you and your commitment to trustworthy science journalism. Today, Giving Tuesday, is a great day to support Science Friday with a donation. And we have a dollar-for-dollar dollar match right now, so any donation you make will be doubled. So please, go to sciencefriday.com support to make your donation and invest in the future of sci-fi programming. Again, that's sciencefriday.com support. And thanks. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Continuing our 2002 conversation with primatologist Jane Goodall about her work with chimpanzees, as well as her conservation efforts. Let's go to uh, Sharif in Philadelphia. Hi. How are you doing? Um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I wanted to ask you two quick questions. Um, I wanted to know if you believe there are any undiscovered large ape species, and if you believe that the bonobo chimpanzee is a subspecies of the chimp or a separate species. Okay, well, I'll do the second one first because that's easy. It's definitely a, another species. Um, it's it's admitted very widely that it's, an, I mean, it's known, it's it's described as another species. It's a bonobo, not a pygmy chimpanzee. Different in many, many ways. What a wild species that is. I mean, just incredible. Yeah. Right? Rich yeah. species. Very, things, the very, things that they do that we never thought That's right. the chimps do. Yes, chimpanzees, bonobos, and humans genetically are equidistant. Um, as for the other, you're talking about Yeti or Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Is that what he's talking about? Yes, yes, he is. <laughs> is, that the, and is that the message I'm missing here? <laughs> I think that's the message you're missing. Is that well, right, Sherry? Uh, pretty much. <laughs> I'm out of the loop. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, now you'll be amazed when I tell you that I'm, I'm sure that they exist. You, you I, are. Yeah. I've talked to so many Native Americans who've all described the same sounds, two who've seen them. I've probably got about oh, 30 books that have come from different parts of the world, from China, from from all over the place. And there was a little tiny uh, snippet in the newspaper just last week, which says that British scientists have found what they believe to be a yeti hair, and that the um, scientists in the Natural History Museum in London couldn't identify it as any known animal. Now, that was just a wee bit in the in the newspaper, and obviously we have to hear a little bit more about well, this that. age of DNA, if you find a hair, there might be some cells on it. Right. Well, there will be, and there I'm sure be. that's what they've examined, and they yeah. don't match up. The, what this my little tiny snippet said that don't match up with DNA cells from known animals, so apes. <laughs> Did you always have this belief that they that they that they existed? Well, I'm a romantic, so I always wanted them to exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sherry. Thank you. Thanks for calling. <laughs> well, how do you go looking for them? I mean, people have been looking, right? Is that like, or has this just been since we don't really believe they could exist? We really haven't really made a serious. Well, there are people looking. There's a, there's very um, 
ardent groups in mm-hmm. Russia, and they have published a whole lot of stuff about what they've seen. Of course, the big, the big um, criticism of all this is where is the body? You know, why isn't there a body? And I can't answer that. And maybe they don't exist, mm-hmm. but I want them to, and and so I. I <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are there are new techniques available now for researchers studying chimpanzees, and some of them are, are touched on in the IMAX film. Um, for instance, uh, DNA technology. T- tell us how that has changed. Well, that's research. been very exciting because the one thing we never knew for sure, although sometimes we could guess, is uh, which male fathered which infant. And with DNA profiling techniques, which can now be done from fecal samples, you don't even need hairs, we now are beginning to identify the fathers. That means that we can look at the relationship between a particular adult male and an infant and find out if there's any special behaviors which seem to indicate that in some way they know. Now, we don't know yet, but Mm. um, it's fascinating. Sometimes our guess is absolutely confirmed. Uh We found an example of incest, which is very rare. But So it's a fascinating new new field for us. Exciting. What needs to be researched out there? I mean, uh, you know, you, you see, it's sort of a silly question. If I knew what was need, we needed, I wouldn't, you know, I'd know where to look for it, right? I mean, what is missing from the picture? Well, one of the most fascinating areas for research is cultural differences between different populations across Africa or even different neighboring communities. And of course, it's still controversial as to whether chimpanzees can have culture but I define it very simply as behavior that's passed from one generation to the next through observation, imitation, and practice. And tool-using behaviors differ quite markedly across the species range in Mm. Africa. Sometimes it's due to different environments, but very often it seems to be due to the young ones seeing what the older ones do. Now, we've just begun to skim the surface of these differences. But even as you and I are speaking, chimpanzees along with their cultures are being wiped out right across Africa. So from about 2 million 100 years ago to the very maximum 200,000 today, and that's more likely to be 150,000 spread over 21 countries, mostly in tiny isolated fragments where there's no possibility for long-term survival because the gene pools aren't big enough. And they're dying, why? They're dying because of habitat destruction as human populations grow. They're caught in wire snares set for other animals, but they catch the chimps and gorillas for that matter. And they either um, die of gangrene or lose a hand or foot and can't compete very well reproductively. But the worst threat for chimps today is the commercial bushmeat trade. And that is the hunting of animals for, for sale in the big towns, not, not subsistence hunting, which has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But this has happened because the logging companies have made roads into the heart of the last great forests of the Congo Basin. Hunters go along the trail, They now have transport. They shoot everything. They load it on the truck. They take it to the towns where the elite will pay more for it than chicken or goat. No kidding. And it's not sustainable at all. Let's see if we can go to the phones. There's someone I'm sure who's dying to talk with Jane Goodall, Jenny in Pasadena. Hi, Jenny. Hi. 
Um, I just wanted to, to thank Jane Goodall for being Jane Goodall and tell her that when I was a little girl, my mother was a feminist and she didn't want me to have Barbies. <laughs> so she wrote to Jane Goodall and asked Jane Goodall if she could make me a Jane Goodall doll. And Jane Goodall actually wrote back or somebody who signed your name wrote back. No, me. That was and, me. And I, um, my mother bought a Malibu Barbie and took all the stuff from G.I. Joe and got her binoculars and made me a little chimpanzee which is very funny looking, and I still have it. And when I grew up, I majored in cultural anthropology because I loved Jane Goodall so much when I was a little kid. And so that's what got me into taking anthropology in the first place. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. And, you know, sometime I'm going to ask you, maybe you'll donate that little doll to the Jane Goodall Institute and we'll auction it and you can contribute thousands of dollars to us. Oh, really? I would love to. I have the letter, but I don't have the Barbie doll anymore. Why, why, why don't you come out with a line of Jane Goodall dolls, Jane? You know, what are you merchandising? That's well, we do, we do merchandising. You know, I'm on a lecture tour now, which mm-hmm. is almost the whole year. Like I'm on the road 300 days a year right now, raising money, raising awareness. We do merchandising at the lectures. Book mm-hmm. signings tend to go on for three hours of signing after a lecture. You know, but, last night I was signing books for two hours. You have one run of Jane Goodall dolls. You don't have to sign those things. <laughs> Think of the money you can have for charity there for your good well, work. Well, believe you me, we are working on it. We have institute offices now in 13 countries around the world, and there are five people from different countries actually talking about merchandising even right as we speak. Hmm. And on our website, janegoodall.org, there's a whole line of this merchandise. It's oh. there. See, and here I thought I was <laughs> breaking new ground. How <laughs> silly of me. Thank you, Joan, for calling. So do you see yourself as, as a, an effective spokesperson for the environment now? There are so few people who are, you know, well, the, I think, the old Barry Commoners and the Paul Ehrlichs and those people. I think the effectiveness, you know, I do spend a lot of time talking to young people, but also uh, people from, you know, all walks of life and all ages. Mm-hmm. And one of the remarks that's so often said to me after a lecture, people come up and they say, uh, you have re-inspired me to do my bit. You have made me feel that my own life is more worthwhile. Um, I feel that I've been just sitting doing nothing. Now I want to do what I can. And, you know, that's... if. If we can get enough people thinking that way, if we can get enough people who care to elect into power the people who also care, um, but politicians want to be re-elected. So until there's a groundswell of people prepared to, to, to accept the tough decisions that may affect their um, purse to some extent, then we'll never get the right legislation. Do, but do you think that people who... Uh who might be tougher to reach with that message, might be more inclined to invite a Jane Goodall to speak or listen to you as someone who was a quote-unquote a political environmentalist from a mainstream organization, maybe like Greenpeace. Well, I do know that when talking to people who perhaps think very differently, the only only chance you have of getting them to think in a different way is to touch the heart and if you're strident, if you start accusing people, if you point fingers, then you immediately see the eyes glaze over and you know that you're not getting across. And, you know, I have to go around and think that so much of what goes on that, in my view anyway, is a mistake, is due not to any kind of criminal intent, but simply because people honestly haven't understood. 
So I feel that that's my job. My job is to help people understand and to think about the future. I mean, if just imagine what this world would be like if we went back to the old tradition of the Native Americans who said every major decision has to be made with the question, how will this affect our people seven generations on? Hmm. Even if we could just say two generations on, even one generation on, it would be helpful. And with, the, with corporate and political frameworks working to the next quarter. Yeah, the, a, a quick buck now and, you know, to hell with the consequences. Yeah. Do you miss, do you miss though, the forest? Do you miss going back to the forest? I try and keep the forest in me. That's that's what I have to do to remain sane. But when I do go back to Gombe, you know, it's to be out in the forest, even without a chimpanzee, to be in that timeless world where it's soft and where life is entwined and you actually see the pattern of nature. And I always feel this great spiritual power, which I believe is is around. It must rejuvenate you. It does, absolutely. You get to see what you're fighting for. Yes. And, you know, just recently I was with Mike Fay. I don't know if you remember Mike Fay walked 2,000 miles across the Congo Basin to see what was there and raise awareness. And I went with him into the Gualogo Forest, which is a 25-kilometer 25, 25 walk, which for somebody used to hotel corridors and airports is quite a walk. And But it was magic. Nobody's ever lived there, not even the pygmies, because it's surrounded by swamps. And the, the chimpanzees and gorillas haven't learned to be afraid. And it was just, it was such a magical experience. It was only five days. But, you know, that will keep me going for a very long time. And that was when I learned about President Bongo that we were talking about just before the break. I mean, he's he's understood. He's got the picture. He realizes that if the logging concessions go through his country, there's not going to be any animals left. And he's become passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And that's enormously hopeful because maybe the other presidents in the Congo Basin will follow suit. What about this idea of, of ecotourism, which Costa Rica has been successful with? Yes, other I, was, places? I was just in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Because the wonderful thing about Costa Rica is that they have money for the environment and social issues because they got rid of their army. They have no military budget. It's so magical. I was just there talking with President Pacheco and, you know, out in the forest. And we're now involved in the forest in Costa Rica. And I think ecotourism, if it's done right, um, is, is, is definitely something that has to be. It has to be. We have to let people see for themselves this magic world so that they feel in their heart the importance of preserving it. I'm Ira Flato, and this is Science Friday from WNYC Studio. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than six million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. In case you're just joining us, finishing up, revisiting our 2002 conversation with legendary primatologist Jane Goodall about her career working with chimpanzees. What do you want to be remembered for? Would you rather be remembered for discovering the tool-making abilities of the, of the chimps or for your work in, in the environment today? I think I'd, I'd like to be remembered as someone who who really helped people to have a little humility and realize that we are part of the animal kingdom, not separated from it. Uh, and it, that has done a lot. The, the various results from chimpanzee research has done a lot to soften scientific attitude. So I think I'd like to be remembered for that. And then about my um, work for the environment, let's wait till I'm dead and see what sort of impact <laughs> I've had. And then, then I can tell you. <laughs> well, we're not gonna. We're not looking forward to finding out. <laughs> but um, I do think the the Roots and Shoots program for youth. That's something that I believe mm. is tremendously important. Tell us a little more about that. What What is that? It started in Tanzania, 91. It's a symbolic name. Roots make a firm foundation. Shoots seem tiny. Together they can break a brick wall. The brick wall, all the problems we've inflicted on the planet, everything, environmental, social, war, terrorism, mm -hmm. hope. Hundreds and thousands of young people around the world can break through. So our programs which are hands-on actions to make the world better for animals, people, environment. Locally, uh, we're now in 60 countries, and we range from preschool through university. It's growing really fast. We've got about 4,000 active groups around the world. The span of what's done is as broad as the imagination of youth, which is huge. And the most important message is that every individual makes a difference every day, and we have this huge power. And if we show it collectively, we can change the world just like that. And I think that our kids are the key. Kids are the key because they understand that message. They truly do. And, you know, that's what keeps me going, traveling these 300 days all over the world and seeing, okay, in Tanzania, in, in America, in Canada, in Germany, in Japan, in mainland China, the children are the same. They've got the shining eyes. They're excited. They want to show me what they've done. They've made a difference. And now we're sharing that around the world. And so you're going to continue to travel? I have around. to. Yeah. I have to. Well, as long as I can. Because? Because it's making a difference. Because I can see the result of of a visit like to mainland China. The, the Minister of the Environment said, Dr. Goodall, I would like your programs in our schools. And it, it's changing the attitude of children to animals. And that's a big place, certainly. One-fifth of the world's population. <laughs> to make a change. Yes. So in your quiet way, I mean, you, you've sort of been in background until we, an IMAX movie or something comes out, but you're still working very hard. Working, I mean... I've, I'm working harder now than I ever worked. This is much harder work than crawling through the forest after the chimps. That was just bliss, exhausting physically, bliss. This is, it's just, you know, every day, and you take it, you live it day by day. That's the only way to get through it. Mm -hmm. Well, good luck to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Jane Goodall. 
And that's all the time that we have for now. A lot of folks helped make the show happen, including Ariel Zich, Santiago Flores, Emma Gomez, Diana Plasker, and many more. Next time, we'll talk about AI that can predict what something is going to smell like. The nose knows, but AI may know too. Until then, I'm sci-fi producer Kathleen Davis. Have a great rest of your day. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts.